0: the most
1: hated figure of the Civil War, one who can still stir passions in people today. Everyone knows that would be William Sherman, Nathan Forrest, Quantro. No, it's Mary Lincoln. And today we'll find out more about America's First First Lady from author and Mary Lincoln presenter Donna McCreary on Civil War Talk Radio.
2: The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk.
0: Listen. Listen.
2: The world is talking. The World Talk
1: Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you on a spectacularly beautiful spring day in April 2010 from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University. It's clear, sunny, not too hot. The uh, air until two days ago was filled with thick clouds of yellow grains of pollen, a phenomenon of the Carolina pines that uh, uh, it takes some getting used to, but is uh, uh, seasonal uh, and, and produces uh, visible clouds that fly through the air and torment people with allergies. Uh, this year there was worse, the worst pollen in anyone's memory. It was, uh, a veritable pollen storm when it finally rained last night. The water poured off the roof and it looked like melted butter, uh, rather than, uh, uh, rainwater filled with this, uh, substance. But it's gone now and, uh, at least for a day or two. So it's a beautiful place to be. Uh, as much as, uh, I sing the praises of the environment here at East Carolina University. I remind listeners that I'm not speaking for the university, uh, nor does it speak for me in any way, even though I am using their resources. And likewise, our guest will, of course, speak for herself, as is always the case here on Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, thanks once again this week, as every week, to listeners with their suggestions. Uh, I appreciate when you uh, send an email and uh you can do that through my address at uh, last name and first initial at ecu.edu if you're interested in uh, uh sending ideas for who might be on the show and those are always welcome and I, I try to act on them uh with reasonable dispatch especially when uh it's somebody who's written a book that that i haven't read that i want to read that i try to get hold of uh so please uh continue with those next week we'll have an interesting uh, discussion uh, by a recent biographer of George Thomas, uh, a book I've started reading and I'm uh, enjoying very much and looking forward to discussing uh, in the week ahead. But uh, this week, uh, well, one more bit of detail to take care of before we get to our show, the uh, reminder that donations for those books are always welcome. Sometimes Joyner Library on campus doesn't have uh, the book I need, and I can't sweet-talk the publisher into sending a review copy, uh, and then I have to actually go out and buy the darn thing. And in that case, the uh, Civil War Book Fund helps out. So if you care to contribute to that, it's Civil War T R, as in talk radio, at AOL.com. Contributions are welcome. As we approach tax day here in the United States, keep in mind the donations to Civil War Talk Radio are not tax-deductible. Uh, it's not a charity, it's not a not-for-profit, not a 501c3, it's just me using the money for whatever I please. Uh, you have to take my word for it that it would be Civil War books, but it could be uh, could be fine clothing, it could be uh, self-indulgence in uh, beautiful, luxurious garments, which does bring us now uh, to our discussion today, as we have with us uh, the author... Of a number of books, one of which is called "Fashionable First Lady: The Victorian Wardrobe of Mary Lincoln," uh, and the author of that book is Donna McCreary. Donna, are you there? Donna, how are you doing? Oh, that's good. uh... Where? How far in southern? How far south in southern Indiana are you?
3: Right across the river from Louisville, Kentucky.
1: So that that's about as far south as you can get. And it's uh, about
3: as far south as you can get. yeah.
1: And yeah, I suppose you could head down to Evansville must be a little technically further south but but you go south from where you are you're you're out of Indiana exactly wow well it it's it is wonderful to have you on the show uh when I wrote to you uh, a little while back, I mentioned in my note that it it was surprised to think I'd been doing the show for five years and and you and I hadn't done a show together uh as we have crossed paths at many Lincoln events over the years. Uh, So, thank you for being on today. I appreciate it very much. Oh,
3: thank you so much for having me. I was trying to remember the last time our paths did cross, and I believe it was at the uh, memorial service for Mary Lincoln.
1: That's right in uh, in, Springfield, in Springfield. That was two couple summers ago. Uh, mm-hmm. I was bringing. I was with a group from uh, from North Carolina, some uh, teachers. And we were on a teaching American history grant program, and uh, I recall I had taken them out to the Lincoln Tomb, and we'd. And as we came out, here comes, walking along, the actual Mary Lincoln herself, uh, which <laughs> would be were, you. Uh, there
3: were several Mary Lincolns there that day.
1: <laughs> Actually, that's right. There were quite, that made it interesting. Uh, yeah,
3: it was. Uh, of course, we're not in period of tired when we do that, but uh, we are a group called, you know, the Mary Lincoln Quarterie and we started doing that memorial service uh, for Mary Lincoln, and it's an annual event, and everybody's welcome. It's always on the anniversary of her death. And then,
1: what day was that?
3: July 16th.
1: July 16th. So you'll be doing that uh, this summer as well?
3: We will be doing it again this summer, and we also have programs at the Lincoln Home uh, talking about uh, Victorian mourning, uh, Mary's family who lived in Springfield. Uh, we try to do different programming you know, every year.
1: And, well, I just I, I want to say it did wonders for my credibility with the group I was leading when I was able to. Uh, when we walked out, and, and there are the Mary Lincolns, and, and you among them, and, and they, you, you and I knew each other. That was uh, that was that was pretty cool, actually. Um, let me let me ask you uh, to introduce you to our listeners. How you got started? Uh, I mean, you've written about Mary Lincoln, you've performed as Mary Lincoln, you've lectured about her. How did you get started in your interest in the subject?
3: Um, I was in a little community called where a community you're familiar with called Madison, Indiana. And I met a gentleman who portrays Abraham Lincoln, and he did a fabulous, fabulous performance that evening. Um, Afterwards, he and I were discussing Mary's role in Abraham's life. And I made the comment that someone needed to be out there truly telling Mary's side of the story. And um, he challenged me. So I spent the next Sixteen months in research and put together a stage show, and that's how I got started. So, and I still research. It's, there's always more to do.
1: Well, that, that is certainly true. There's always new new things coming up. So, you began doing this. Who who's interested in hearing Mary's side of the story? Where where did you perform when you started doing this?
3: My very first program was with a Civil War roundtable. Um. The, actually, the one there in Madison, you know, um, mm-hmm. and then uh, just Civil War roundtables, uh, historical societies. Uh, I've talked to schools. I've been at various museums. Uh, I, I have to give you a plug because one of one of my highlights in my career was getting to be in that program at the Lincoln Museum in Fort Wayne uh, nope. that opened up that exhibit. Uh,
1: that was a great p- program, I recall that uh, it, fondly.
3: It was It was definitely a highlight for me. Um, and then, you know, I I just started branching out a little bit, uh, started doing it as a one-woman show, and I still do a one-woman show, and then started working with a gentleman named Macon Ray. I don't know if you remember him or not. He was also from southern Indiana. Uh, Macon has, you know, of course passed away now but he had the position of being President Lincoln at the Lincoln Amphitheater for 13 seasons. Uh. And he and I put together a couple of shows, and then when he retired, um, I started working with Dean Durrell. And Dean and I still do performances together. Um, We have had the opportunity to put together this program called Lincoln Letters, and it is a reader's theater theater, The fun thing about it is that when it's done in its glory, it is seven different scenes depicting seven different time periods in the relationship of Abraham and Mary. And between each scene, there is a course of food served. Uh So it's a seven-course meal. All of the recipes have to come from my book, Lincoln's Table. And it is a rippering good time. (laughs)
1: Uh, it, uh, it, it sounds like in seven courses it would have to be. Uh, it must take a while to, to go through that.
3: It, it does. The entire evening takes about uh, two and a half hours, um, you know, from start to finish. And uh, Dean and I both really enjoy working on the show. I, I love it because we get to take Mary to, or I get to take Mary to all of her emotions. Um, and everyone always enjoys the food. And we've had an opportunity to do that one several times for fundraisers for, you know, educational units at colleges, um, A&E centers, small community theaters, historical centers. Um, we we really enjoy doing that show.
1: So do you travel a great deal doing the uh, the Mary Lincoln presentations?
3: Yes. <laughs> you have to. <laughs> It, and last year was, you know, with it being the bicentennial of Lincoln's birth, was um, <clears throat> exceedingly grueling on the travel uh, itinerary. But uh, this year is busy, but not as busy as last year.
1: Do you do? Let me ask you: Is this a day job at this point? Is this what you do? Or
3: this is, is what this? I do. Ah, but,
1: and and you're able to. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
3: Between between performing. And authoring the book—that—that that is my job.
1: I mean, that—that's something. Uh, some listeners may have read Andrew Ferguson's uh... book, uh, "Land of Lincoln," that, that has a chapter about uh, the Abraham Lincoln presenters, and uh, people get exposed to to that idea through different media. And often, it seems kind of uh... uh it. There, there's a, a line between taking it seriously and not that is that people sometimes cross in each direction, uh, but in fact, uh, the idea that it is possible to to do this full time really, I think suggests there's a depth of interest out there in in the subject.
3: I, I agree with that, and I think those of us who do, you know, who do this for a living, who do it professionally, I mean, we are very serious, and and you know, there. I believe there's room for anybody and everybody who, you know, wants to take this to whatever level they wish. But it's also my belief that if you're going to be in front of children, if you're going to be performing with historical societies, Civil War roundtables, you had best know your history.
1: So how did you go about learning your history?
3: Um, started with just reading, you know, a few of the books and i've my background is education, and when I was teaching, I taught english u s history, speech, and theater, so you know doing this gives me an opportunity to take all of those genres and pull them into one business, which I thoroughly love but i 've always been a believer that if you are going to read a book, do not take somebody else 's word for it, go find the original source so that would start taking me to the museums, and I spend of uh, uh, I don't know how much time I spend in museums every year, but you know I try to to go through everything I possibly can. Um, as you probably well remember, I did spend quite a bit of time up in Fort Wayne when the museum was there, and and I spent quite a bit of time in Springfield uh, going through the original documents. Uh, you know, the Kentucky Historical Society is another wealth of uh, treasure trove that uh, that I've been in many times. Um, I, I just keep digging.
1: Where, where's the the least likely place you found something uh, useful for for your presentation?
3: Um, the least likely place. Oh, gee.
1: I mean, I, I guess you go to archive. You go to a place like the Lincoln Presidential Library or the the late Lincoln Museum. You, you'd expect to find some material there. Mm-hmm. Have you ever come across a Lincoln? Uh, related piece or history related piece where you didn't expect it?
3: Yes, I guess. Um, Of course, after I realized who this woman was, it made perfectly good sense. But years ago, um, I met this woman who lived in Lexington, Kentucky. And she told me that in her home, she had just trunks full of Lincoln and Todd family artifacts. And of course, her name was Mary Murphy. And and uh, she and I became great friends, um, she actually knew Mary's sister, Emily Todd Helm. And more importantly, Mary was the daughter of William Townsend, who was the Helm family attorney, a good friend, and was a Lincoln biographer. Um, when, after Emily passed away and after her eldest daughter, Catherine, passed away, they wanted to, but there were no descendants other than, you know, the two children who were living who at that point were elderly, and they needed a way to make sure that everything stayed in, intact. So they sold their home, lock, stock, and barrel, all Todd Lincoln artifacts intact to Mr. Townsend, and he gave everything to his daughter. And so when I went there, and she says, oh, I need to show you Daddy's satchel," And she opened up Daddy's satchel, which looked like a 1920-style weekend overnight bag, And the first thing I took out was a letter from Robert Todd Lincoln. Wow. So Uh, since uh, she's passed away, many of those things have been put, you know, in archives someplace.
1: Yeah, that was my immediate question. What happened to everything? But it's it's gone to different repositories.
3: Yeah, some some of it, I believe, went to Frankfort, Kentucky. I think some of it went to U.K., University of Kentucky. Um, I'm not sure where everything has gone. Her husband is still living. He's um, elderly, but, you know, the historical things have been, the documents, of course, I think, have been placed in archives. I don't believe that many of them have been cataloged yet.
1: Now, we talked, uh, and this brings up, as you said, there's always new things coming up in history. And, uh, I mean, here's an example. Not too long ago, uh, um, there was the uh, – Jason Emerson published the the book uh, based on a, a, uh, the Madness of Mary Lincoln based on yes. the trunk full of new material that he came across uh, of letters from Mary. Uh, first of all, do you suppose there are yet more trunks of letters out there somewhere?
3: I hope so. I it, truly do. I I am convinced that somewhere in the descendants of the Todd family – there are trunks, and I truly hope that some of those start coming to surface.
1: I mean, we have the the, the Turner's collection published of, of Mary's letters some years ago now, some decades mm-hmm. ago now. Uh, one thick volume. Uh, it seems like a lot of material, but but I suppose over a lifetime there could be many, many more letters than that.
3: There could be, and, and in addition to Jason's. You know, collection that he ran. well not his collection but the collection that Jason found um, there was another one a few years ago that came out
1: um, let, let me interrupt you for a second and we'll come back and talk about that other new collection mm-hmm. in just a moment right now we're talking with our guest Donna McCreary and this is Civil War Talk Radio
2: the World Talk Radio Variety Channel.
1: Although Mary Todd Lincoln died over a century ago, new evidence continues to bubble to the surface. We'll find out about some of these new letters from Mary Lincoln expert Donna McCreary when we return on Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Listen. Listen.
2: The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel.
0: Are you ready to go green? You've asked, and we've heard you. Introducing the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit thegreentalknetwork.com and tune in to help spread the green.
2: You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety
1: Channel. Welcome back. To Civil War Talk Radio, I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Donna D. McCreary. She's the author of Lincoln's Table, a president's culinary journey from cabin to cosmopolitan, as well as Fashionable First Lady: The Victorian Wardrobe of Mary Lincoln. Uh, it's a and uh, Donna McCreary is perhaps best known for presentations as Mary Lincoln. Uh, first-person interpretations that tell the story of the uh, most controversial First Lady in American history, the first one to go by the term First Lady. Uh, and in our first segment we were talking about uh, some of the evidence uh, by which we know uh, the story of Mary Lincoln, in particular her letters, and the recent discoveries of, of uh, in some cases, whole trunks full of letters uh, that, that Mary had written that had been unknown until recently. Donna, you were suggesting that in addition to the one Jason Emerson used for his book uh, *The Madness of Mary Lincoln*, uh, there have been other recent discoveries. Uh, could you tell us about that?
3: Presidential Library in Springfield recently purchased a collection, and it has. There are letters in that collection that have never been published before, and you know I was reading through some of those, and one of them that that really pulled on my heartstrings was one that Mary wrote to a friend of hers. And uh, Mary had just returned home from the funeral of another friend's son. And she wrote about, you know, how, how difficult it is to lose a child and, and how, you know, even though it had been a while, she had not yet recuperated from the loss of Eddie.
1: What, now, where where did they purchase these letters? Do you know where they came from?
3: Um, these were the Louise uh, Louis Taper collection.
1: Ah, Louise Taper, the famous collector who had pretty much everything in the Lincoln world at one time. It seemed.
3: It uh, seemed. I, I think William Townsend's collection at one time. You know, I think he held the largest collection, but um, unfortunately, his collection was never kept intact. But. Uh,
1: so. Um, uh, so, so we have these new letters. Uh, when we were talking, uh, was there another letter that you and I were discussing uh, a few weeks ago when we, we talked about doing the show?
3: There, there was a letter. It's not a Mary letter, but it's about Mary's sister. Ah. And it also is currently located in Springfield. Um, there's this rumor that you know, Mary had planned a wedding and that Lincoln didn't bother to show up. And, you know, that he had left her standing at the altar. That's right. And I've always thought that was an interesting story, but I've always thought it was just a story. And as I'm going through these letters, they were written by Mary's friend, Julia Jane. And Julia was writing to her sister-in-law, whose name just also happened to be Julia. And she was writing about Anne getting married to Clark Smith and how the wedding was all planned and... And instead of a groom showing up, uh, a messenger comes saying that Clark can't show up for the wedding because he's sick. Huh. And at that point, Anne reportedly said that, and and of course I'm paraphrasing, but you know said he better be sick, <laughs> <laughs> not to show up.
1: That's right.
3: And if he's going, and if he's so sick that he's not going to show up, well, she wasn't going to marry him anyway because. He didn't want to be a young widow.
1: Hmm. So so this was a friend, uh, an acquaintance of Mary Lincoln, who was essentially stood up at the altar.
3: It was her sister.
1: Her sister, actually.
3: Yes, it was actually her sister who was stood up at the altar, and a friend of Mary's was writing about it.
1: And Julia Jane is writing the letter.
3: Yes, Julia Jane is writing the letter. Okay. And Anne Todd, and, you know, Miss Todd, was stood up, and, of course, you know, Clark showed up several days later and and the comment in the letter was that Anne uh put the wedding together so quickly that her sisters barely had time to change clothes and and dress appropriately. Um, Clark and Anne had their wedding, and they um, went on the carriage and left town and went back to um wherever it was he was from, Carrollton, I believe. And they lived, you know, and she began her married life there.
1: So, I mean, this touches on, as you said, one of the most uh, curious and, and and confusing incidents in Lincoln's life, the courtship with Mary Todd. Mm-hmm. When, uh, according to some stories, uh, as you alluded, uh, the wedding was all set, uh, we do know that that Abraham and Mary were, were engaged and then didn't get married and then did get married. Right. But as to how it broke off, that's always been a matter of debate. And, and some people have written that that uh, he didn't show up. And, and
3: I think, my personal opinion, is that as the stories, you know, were told, well, Miss Todd was stood up at the altar, and I think they confused Miss Ann Todd with Miss Mary Todd.
1: And the, I mean that would account, be, because it is—it's a dramatic thing. It's not something you would sort of misremember yourself. If if you got stood up at the altar or did that to someone, you, you'd never forget that. Mm-hmm. But but in the Lincoln sort of oral tradition, it comes down to us in different ways uh, as to whether as to how this actually happened. I, now Herndon reports it as as Abe not showing up, right? But your suggestion is that, that that's not the case and that we do, now we have a documented case where it did happen to a different Todd mm-hmm. daughter and that that could be the source of the, the Lincoln story.
3: It, it it truly could be. And, you know, Anne was a very interesting sister. Um, you know, uh, they several people comment that of all of the Todd sisters, Anne had the most vicious temper. Hmm.
1: So he may indeed have been sick, uh, judiciously. So, uh, uh, well, look, let me ask this: um, the the, uh, the the reason that story comes about, or, or the reason why people debate it to this day, is ties in with the whole controversy over Mary Lincoln herself. Uh, Lincoln scholars portray her in a lot of different ways, uh, uh, from negative to positive. Why is Mary Lincoln such a polarizing figure?
0: Um I
3: you know I, that is a million dollar question, isn't it? I th- I think there are several theories on that. Uh, one of the reasons I think she is is because, you know, I really think her emotions ran the gamut. I mean, she was she was that Scott, you know, Irish American girl who was quick-tempered and and witty and and uh could be sarcastic, and, you know, people talked about her biting sarcasm. Um, you know, she, she's very intelligent. She is, in so many ways, um, she is much better suited for a life in Washington than Lincoln is. And maybe people felt they had to build him up by tearing her down. I mean, that's one theory. Mm. Um it was a man's world.
1: Now, in terms of your own take on it, give, given that you present Mary Lincoln professionally, mm-hmm. uh, uh, one would guess that, that you're not that you have some degree of sympathy for her. Is that fair to say?
3: Yes, I, I do. I I see Mary as a woman who very much loved her husband. Um, I think she's a doting mother. Um, I think in many ways she was an excellent first lady. Um, you know, she embraced some social causes and, and worked very diligently. And for many reasons, her, her life was just torn apart by tragedy. And, you know, of course her temperament I don't think allowed her to handle some of that tragedy. Graciously, as some people felt that she should have, um, but you know we're talking about a woman who was who was fighting with every inch of her being to support her husband, who is fighting with every inch of his being to save the union and to save the government, and her family are on the op- is many members of her family are on the opposing side. And I think that's another reason why she is loved by some and hated by some because, you know, even at the time no one could make up their mind how they felt about her, a lot of the members of the press couldn't figure out which side she supported. Or they would allude to, you know, her being a Confederate sympathizer or something would happen in Washington and, and some reporter would comment, we have to remember Mrs. Lincoln has brothers fighting for the Confederacy. That had to just break her heart.
1: No, I mean, she never did anything that would indicate sympathy for the Confederacy. Never. But, but she was accused of it.
3: She's accused of it, and actually her, one of her causes was you know, she was one of those women who went into the hospital and worked diligently to improve the conditions of the soldiers. And when, they were her soldier boys, and she loved them all.
1: She didn't get as much publicity for that, though, when she would go to a hospital with you know, fresh fruit or other supplies for the troops then, than when she went to New York City to go shopping.
3: Well, exactly. And, you know, but she didn't want the pub, the publicity for working with the soldiers because, you know, and I think there's a quote that she once said to her son that, you know, he, Robert commented you know that she should take a press corps with her, and, and you know, she didn't do it for publicity for herself. She was doing it for them and then we we have these letters where she would sit and write letters and she didn't even bother to tell people who she was but you know she maybe a soldier was too sick to write or didn't know how to write and she would sit and write a letter you know i'm sitting here with your soldier boy mm-hmm. you know he he does to tell you that he's feeling better and she would sign it sign it mrs lincoln and there's the one story that was in the newspaper after Mary died, a soldier wrote that, you know, he came home and his mother asked him what he thought of Mrs. Lincoln. And he said, Well, I never met her. And she goes in and gets the letter. And, and the soldier is absolutely astounded that he was sitting there with the wife of the president and didn't even know it.
1: Hmm. And I suppose with today's, uh, you know, visual culture, you wouldn't be able to do that. Everybody would know what Mary looked like. Uh, we we know what Mary looked like from photographs, or certainly our photographs of her, uh, but not a huge number. Uh, True. Which leads me to a question about presenting Mary Lincoln and, and the material culture of doing this. Um, you've written about, about Mary's wardrobe. Uh, how do you research something like that, uh, what she wore?
3: Um, the first thing I did was I went to the archives where the museums where things are located and studied, you know, the clothing. Um, is, when is there I a lot first, of her clothing left? There's some. There there are some things available. Um, not a great deal, but, you know, a dress here, a skirt there, you know, sort of thing. Um, some beautiful things. All, all of them are beautiful. I can't say some. They're all breathtaking. Uh, the lady absolutely had fantastic taste in fashion. Um, and and she deserved to. You know, I mean, we, we all look at... We, I can't say all of us, but most of us watch the inaugural ball just to see what the First Lady's wearing. You know, it doesn't matter what a person's politics are. I want to see what dress she has on. <laughs> I want to know who her designer is. Um, I'm guilty of that. And Mary definitely believed that her wardrobe was a reflection of her which was common Victorian thinking I mean Mary was not the only woman who felt this way you know your wardrobe is your personality and Mary believed that she deserved the best
1: well this really I mean it is a political uh, statement as you point out with the inaugural balls uh, people want to see who what designer is the first lady wearing? But at the same time, the clothing that the first lady wears even today does, to a degree, make a political statement in terms of, of uh, how you know aggressively fashionable it is. I suppose um, when when Mary held the grand ball at the White House in February 1862 uh, to show off how she had redecorated, uh, that was also a political statement, wasn't it?
3: I think so. Um, I think we're, we're looking at a time in history, and, and I think so many times we forget this, but you know, um, the Civil War rolls around, and, and the United States is a new government. You know, Lincoln stands in Gettysburg, and he says four score and seven years ago. Most people forget that that four score and seven years is 87 years, and he's referring to the writing of the Declaration of Independence. So our government at this time is 87 years old, and we have European governments, monarchies, you know, the kings, the palaces, um, who are basically just sitting and waiting for this American experiment uh, of a government to fall flat on its face. And when Mary and Abraham moved into the White House, Mary's cousin was with them, and she referred to it as looking like a third-rate, ran-down hotel. You know, the, the walls were crumbling, the carpets were bare, they couldn't find a decent set of china to have a state dinner, you know, where everybody had matching dishes, um, draperies were worn. And we also forget that at this time in history, this was not just, where the president lived, this is where anybody and everybody who wanted to go look at the president or meet the president showed up, and you just went in, and many people who just went in felt like, well, this is the people's house, and I have a right to take a souvenir, <laughs> and they would lop off a piece of a drape or cut a piece of, of, of cloth out of an upholstered ferni- you know, piece of furniture. So when the Lincolns move in, the place looks horrible. And, you know, they talk about, you know, there were rats in the basement, and the place smelled badly. And from Mary's perspective, and not just Mary's perspective, from many politicians of that day, they're going, look, (laughs) these dignitaries from Europe and these other countries are coming. We have to prove that our government is strong. We have to prove we're not going to fail. And so Mary can then take that and say, we have to have our home and have ourselves look as stable as any European government. So we're
1: going to take another short break at this point, if I can step in, Donna, for a second. Sure. And we'll come back in a minute and talk more about Mary Lincoln redecorating the White House and other things that she did as First Lady. We'll do that when we return in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio.
2: The World Talk Radio Variety Channel where the world comes to listen and talk.
1: Mary Lincoln played an important political role in the Civil War years, but she was also a homemaker. And we'll find out what she put on the Lincoln table when we return on Civil War Talk Radio.
2: The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Love old cars and want to know more about them? Thinking about investing in your dream car but don't know if it's a smart decision? Want to fix up that classic that's just rotting away in your garage but don't know how to get started? You need Resto Talk. Every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific, Melvin Benziquin, the restoration expert, will address these topics and more, and invite prestigious guests from the automotive industry to answer all of your questions and provide you with great quality information. Get your motors started with Resto Talk on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel.
0: Listen. Listen.
2: The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel.
1: Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking today with Donna McCreary, author of Lincoln's Table, also the fashionable first lady, Victorian wardrobe of Mary Lincoln, and an expert presenter of Mary Lincoln as Mary in, uh, period dress, telling the story in the first person of America's most controversial First Lady. In our last segment, we were talking about the important role that appearances play in politics, that marrieds fashion, marrieds redecorating the White House were not just personal indulgences, but had a lot to do with how others saw the administration, and for that matter, the country. So uh, Donna, in that sense, the, the the grand ball that was held in 1862 to Show off what Mary had done as a a, in terms of refurbishing the White House was was an important statement of her own role in in the administration. Is that right? I,
3: I would agree with that, and of course, you know, many of the newspapers said that it had been a a wonderful success and that it had been one of the most successful entertainments that had ever been held in Washington. Um, of course. You know, this is when Willie is very sick. So, you know, Abraham and Mary, neither one really enjoyed the party. But <laughs> she had she had succeeded in in her goal of, of redecorating, and and I I think some of the reasons that we had some of the political support that we did was because of Mary.
1: Uh, the, now, the at the the party. Uh, Actually, I'm not sure if it was the party itself. It may have been one of the inaugural balls. So we have surviving evidence today of things like the menu, uh, so we know what was served. And I know at events at, at the Lincoln Museum in Fort Wayne, we would occasionally have big social events and serve food from the Lincoln era. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what I want to ask you about. You've, you've written this book, Lincoln's Table, that is, uh, on one level a cookbook, uh, but also talks about where some of these recipes came from, uh, what kind of stuff did, did the Lincolns eat?
3: Um, depends on, you mean when they're in Washington?
1: <laughs> well, I guess that's a good, good, good question to ask first. Starting out uh, in Springfield when, when they first uh, are, are married, what, what would a middle-class Victorian couple uh, normally serve for, for Sunday dinner?
3: Um, one of the things that we know that that Mary was known to have served was uh, things like prairie chicken and uh, venison um, and then of course you know we also have to remember that at this time in history you know they may have been serving wild wilder game but it was not because Abraham Lincoln was grabbing a gun and going hunting um, as his family would have done in Kentucky and Indiana, it was because those meats were cheaper and you could buy them cheaper than beef, you know, at the market in town. Hmm. And so she did look for the more economical ways of preparing things. Um, we don't really know a whole lot about what they ate, you know, on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. Um, we do, You know, in Springfield, we do know that... Um, she was famous for strawberry parties. And that the entire nineteenth century idea of summer entertaining were these berry parties and they started with strawberries coming in season and ended, you know, with the blackberries and raspberries. And she would have guests over and and serve berries in any form you could imagine serving them. <laughs> <laughs> And ice cream was, you know, the um, the aristocracy of Springfield. And, you know, we sometimes forget how many Todd's were living in Springfield at, at that particular time. But in their letters back and forth, they write frequently about uh, having ice cream.
1: Ah. Now that would have to be... Uh, there's no electricity or refrigeration. They would crank that out by hand, I guess.
3: Crank it out by hand. You know, having the ice um, covering it with carpets and letting it get cold, and you know, keeping things insulated. Uh, probably about a two-hour process, and not having a large amount of it. You know, for all of those efforts, so everyone, you know, would of course eat it as quickly as possible because it's not going to last very long. Um, but um, anne uh, todd smith you know was also another one of the family members who wrote about or who who is known to have had the strawberry parties and served berries and cream and uh, you know and to serve the ice cream uh, that is the one wonderful thing about mary's cousin john todd stewart he wrote these fabulous letters to his daughter who was in school at the time and they are just the most gossipy things you can imagine and he tells all sorts of stories you know in them about the todd family and you know cousin mary and cousin Anne and, you know and, and it it's just really a joy to read those letters uh,
1: now i recall at the lincoln museum that we had a a uh, cake recipe uh... it was a white cake i think involving pineapple with white frosting and the exhibit said it was uh, Abraham Lincoln's favorite cake that he had once praised it when Mary served it
0: yes, i always been and I under say it not.
1: well that was, that's my thought my what about that you don't think that's the case
3: i don't think that's the case i um, i have some theories on that you know i i got the recipe of course from the Lincoln museum and contacted wanted to know where the Lincoln Museum had gotten it and contacted the historian who had found it. And and he told me what um, library he had found it in. And, and I went to that library, and I pulled the original recipe that's in the files. And all it says is Mary's white cake. There's no icing recipe to accompany it. There's no documentation in the archives that say, Yes, this was Lincoln's favorite cake. It's just a recipe card, and it doesn't even say Mary who. Ah. And, you know, it's in the files that at one time had belonged to Mary's sister, Emily Todd Helm. I cannot tell you how many Marys there are in the Todd family, because there are many. So this is Mary's white cake.
1: And that's all we know.
3: That's all we know. Um, when I started doing the research on the second edition of Lincoln's Table, which um, is the one you're probably most familiar with, lo and behold, I had stumbled across a 1923 uh, ladies' home journal. And in it was an article about famous Kentucky caterers, including uh, uh, Monsieur girond who was from Lexington, Originally from France, um, had known the Todd family, and the legend with this white cake is that he created this beautiful white cake when Lafayette came to visit, and it was supposed to be the standard by which all white cakes, you know, were, being, you know, judged from then on. And the story is that the Todds loved this cake very much, and that they got the recipe from Monsieur, and that he you know, passed it on. Well, <laughs> this 1923 article had Monsieur Girard's recipe in it, and you know what? They don't match. Hmm. Um, the one that was made for Lafayette, it is referred to in, in this article as the Lafayette cake, and there's no almonds in it. And that's a huge feature feature in the cake that Mary Lincoln made because it's the vanilla almond cake. hmm um, it also describes the, rec- the icing that he used, and has you know the recipe for that. And there's no candied fruit in that recipe, which there was candied fruit in the one that that was at the Lincoln Museum. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same article also had this gorgeous recipe for a cake called the Todd Pecan Cake, or no, it's just called Pecan Cake. I, I call it the Todd Pecan Cake. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called a pecan cake, and it said that its claim to fame was that when Lincoln came to visit, he enjoyed it at the Todd home and said it was the best cake he ever ate.
1: The uh, My thinking uh, with any of those comments is that you know Abraham Lincoln was a smart man, and if he's going to have cake at the Todd's house, he is going to say, this is the best I've ever had.
3: Uh, my comment is he's a gracious cake eater.
1: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I would agree with that. Well, I think these recipes are very interesting. I mean, they, they they look tempting, and they they highlight to me the the difference between modern cooking and the cooking of of the Civil War era. In that, it wasn't until late in the nineteenth century that we started to get what they call scientific recipes, where it tells you a Quarter teaspoon of this and a half teaspoon of that, and bake at three twenty-five for forty-five minutes. These are all quite imprecise uh, by those standards. They say bake it till it's done.
3: Exactly. Uh, some some of them are, and you know, and some of them aren't. But a lot of these cake recipes, too. I mean, oh my goodness, it depends on the size of the pan you put it in. And you know, this pecan cake recipe, it makes a very large batter. And, you know, you can put that in one great big, what they would have used would have been some kind of a fluted pan or, you know, a copper pan, and it will bake. It can take up to three hours to bake it that way. Or you can put it in a modern-size, round, nine-inch cake pan and bake it for, you know, 45, 50 minutes, and and it's fine, and you've got maybe five, six layers. Um, I usually... Actually, that recipe is one that I've, I have been known to cut in half because it does make a very large amount. Um, the vanilla almond cake uh, I like baking that in butt cake pans but they,
1: they they would have depended on on uh, the sort of oral transmission from mother to daughter to to know this sort of thing uh, or, or or I guess the other reason is they wouldn't have had a, an oven with a thermostat on it
3: exactly. You're you're baking in. I mean, some of these recipes are old enough that you know you're baking them on an open fire.
1: So when it's done is, is when it's done. They, you don't know if it's three forty-five or four hundred degrees.
3: Use uh, a piece of straw in the center of it, and when it comes out clean, yes, when it's done, it's done.
1: Getting back to Mary as first lady, um, if if a listener wanted to read one book. Uh, uh you know a listener goes to your show uh, gets interested in, in Mary's story uh what books would you what would you recommend or what would you not recommend i, I don't want to put you, uh, too much on the spot for that but uh put it another way who what authors like mary and what authors don't
3: um anything by Ruth Painter Randall i think is very almost, well, I don't really want to say sugar-coated, but it's very favorable towards Mary. Mm -hmm. Uh, Definitely, you know, defends her. Uh, Catherine Clinton is favorable towards Mary. Um, One of my favorite books is, and of course, it's difficult to find, but it is out there, and that is Catherine Helm's uh, book. We have to be careful, though, when reading Catherine Hamm. I love that book because, you know, Emily is, is of course, Catherine's mother, and Emily is Mary's half-sister. We're talking about somebody writing the book who actually knew Mary. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that book was also endorsed by Robert Todd Lincoln and financed by Robert Todd Lincoln. So it says what Robert wanted it to say.
1: So definitely it's going to have a favorable uh, approach there.
3: It's going to be favorable, but the childhood stories are wonderful.
1: Uh, Donna, I'm sorry to say that once again, as happens too soon each week on Civil War Talk Radio, we are out of time. Our hour has uh, come to its end. But I want to thank you so much for talking Mary with us today.
3: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I, I love talking Mary.
1: And listeners, you'll want to check out Lincoln's Table by Donna D. McCreary for some very interesting and tasty uh, insights into... Uh, what it was like to, to dine with the Lincolns. And in addition to doing that, listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.